Good morning. I uh, bring you greetings from Yale University and from Berkeley Divinity School at Yale. We already know each other in a sense because both Rector Noel and Associate Robbie are products of Berkeley at Yale. This means, of course, that everything good they do comes from their seminary training. I have, I have nothing to say about the rest. Uh, but it's good to be able to share with you through them in the good work of the reign of God and the gospel uh, otherwise. And it's, of course, very good to be here as you continue this remarkable celebration of 250 years. Have you decided whether this is a, what is it, a sesquicentenary or a semi-quinquennial? Uh, uh, but uh, it is a, a privilege to be with you as you continue to celebrate. This place, this building, reflects the faith and hope and love of so many for such a long time. And as we think about the, the, the imagery of the gospel, we can't help but be conscious that those of us here have come late to the vineyard, as it were, to labor where others had worked before us and have uh, done much work and borne good fruit. So this place and, of course, the range of your mission and the strength of your community bears witness to the efforts of those who are not here with us now, as well as to those who are. But above all, it bears witness to the character of God's grace and call, which is the point of our gospel today. You've been engaged in a process of celebration, but as your own resources reflect, a retrospect is not always just cause for celebration, is it? We have to think carefully about those things we have done which we ought to have not done, and those things we have left undone, as the prayer book puts it. Doubtless, uh, many of us still wonder, in particular, how our predecessors could be in this building, enslavers, emancipators, and enslaved persons all together, even while offering their prayers to the God who has called us all from slavery to sin, to freedom and fullness of life. This uh, retrospect and this, this account for sins past is unavoidable, but it also has its dangers. Uh, it has dangers if we get to the point of thinking, well, they didn't understand that very well, but we, of course, have moved on to a higher plane of moral existence in a whole range of ways. It's worth asking, you know, if, God willing, there should be a quincentennial. Did you follow that? That's the 500th anniversary, right? If there is a 500th anniversary of Christchurch, what it is that the people sitting here will find unable to fathom about what we could just stomach, about the society in which we live and the church in which we live. Because, you see, those exercises in retrospect do not take us anywhere if they simply have us think that they did a bunch of wrong stuff and, of course, we're, we've, we've got it right now. It's actually an opportunity for us to wonder what we are swallowing, as it were, what we are not giving a full account of. How, they might ask, could we lament our forebears' complicity with enslavement but countenance the massive inequality that still plagues us in its wake and which threatens the social and political fabric of the country in so many obvious ways in recent years? Or they'll ask how we manage to pray sincerely to God as creator week in and week out, even while we continue to place creation itself at risk through the many ways in which our patterns of consumption do not actually constitute a sustainable and hence respectful response to the God who is the giver of all good things. Now, you may have an issue of your own that you would like to add to the list. That's not actually my prime purpose. But the point is, of course, to say that retrospect and self-examination are not simply a matter for the past. 
we cannot conclude that those who came to the work earlier were inferior to us. The point is that all of us, all of us, are prone to see the work as we encounter it in terms of our own interests and the limits of our own knowledge. We can't always overcome that fact simply by acknowledging it, but it's not a bad start. Now there's uh, an issue in the gospel today which seems to me to reflect on this, and you have taken the great risk of inviting a, a, a professor to preach today, so I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid I'm going down a scholarly rabbit hole with you for just a couple of moments. Our deacon Robbie had to put up with reading the rather uh, clumsy phrase, usual daily wage, four times in the course of telling the story of the labourers in the vineyard. Now I know none of you has been here for 250 years, but some of you have been here long enough to remember older translations of that story. The New Revised Standard Version, which came along in the 1990s, is the giver to us of that dubious phrase. But in older versions of the Bible, of course the, the King James Version and others, it doesn't say anything about usual daily wages at all, and the Greek text doesn't say that either. It simply says, the owner agreed with them on a denarius. A denarius. It's a silver coin that was really the, the central element of the Roman coinage. And it was a silver coin about the size of a, a penny, as a matter of fact. Just maybe a little bigger and thicker than a penny, but made of metallic silver. So it was actually considerably more valuable than a penny. Jesus is speaking at a time when the Roman imperial authorities who had taken over his own homeland and local elites who conspired with them had been pushing small farmers off their subsistence level holdings to create larger states where they could produce things like, well, grapes, uh, in much more efficient ways by doing it a thousand acres at a time rather than by having small subsistence holdings which were focused on the security of the small landowners themselves. You may think back to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where the notion of peace and prosperity is envisaged by the prophets as everyone living under their vine and fig tree. Remember that phrase? It's even made its way into some hymnody and so forth. And of course the idea of that was that each person on their small holding would have the fig tree that would feed their family and the vine from which they could make their own wine and so forth. But um, agribusiness in the first century had already discovered what came back to this country in a big way in the 20th, deciding that it's much more efficient to grow grapes or figs or corn or soybeans or whatever else by making it not viable for small farmers to do their thing and instead by collecting vast tracts of land. And then, of course, probably hiring back the people who used to own it in order to work it at a much lower rate. Enter these day labourers of Jesus' parable. These, I suspect, we are meant to imagine as the dispossessed landowners themselves, who now have to wait in the ancient equivalent of a Home Depot each morning. I don't know if you have this sort of arrangement somewhere close to Alexandria. I'm sure you do somewhere in Virginia, where day labourers, often, of course, undocumented migrants and others, will go to the Lowe's or the Home Depot, or sometimes onto the on-ramp near an interstate or something like that, waiting to see who will pick them up and put them in the back of the truck for a day's work. This is strikingly like our own experience, isn't it? But we also know, if we think about that, that these day labourers have not chosen that as a kind of vocation which has some massive level of economic security attached to it, quite the contrary. 
a day labourer is happy to have the wages of the day in exchange for what most of us would think of as unappealing and backbreaking work, but also might not have the wage the next day because that's the nature of the business, isn't it? It's insecurity itself. So here's where I want to complain a bit, not just about the translator's attempt to make this a bit easier for us, but perhaps the translator's drawing a veil across how economics really works. You see, think about it. What's a usual daily wage? I've got three different answers for you, people of Alexandria. I thought about this. Um, when I went to get my coffee before the first service at Misha's this morning, I might have been dealing with people who were getting something close to the Virginia minimum wage. You know what that is at the moment? You can see me afterwards. It's $12, but going up. Uh, now, maybe it measures because it's artisanal coffee, they do a little better than that. But I bet you've driven past a couple of places on your way here where people are working for the minimum wage. So what's their usual daily wage? Let's say they've worked eight hours, they're getting just shy of $100. Is that a usual daily wage? Okay, try, try option two. The average uh, annual earnings in Alexandria, yes, it's possible to discover this, the average annual earnings of Alexandrian people are uh, $84,000. This includes, of course, people who are not waged or salaried, but dependents and so forth, people who are not yet in the workforce or people who are no longer in the workforce. And uh, let me spare you the math. If we turn that back into daily earnings, that's about $350, which is a lot more than 100. There's your second option. Is that the usual daily wage? All right, here's option three. Now, there are some of you down there who are, are professionals or consultants or in business who know perfectly well that it would hardly be worth your getting up in the morning and going to the office if you weren't going to bill a thousand a day. Right? What's the usual daily wage? You see, the problem is not calculating it. The problem is that it doesn't exist. And it didn't exist in the first century any more than it exists in the 21st century because the whole notion of there being a usual daily wage draws a veil across the realities of inequality which actually characterise our society just as they characterise the society into which Jesus could teach that parable using the experience of the day labourer as the basis for what he wanted to say. The denarius uh, isn't a, a trivial amount of money to get for a day's work. If you actually did get one every day, then you would actually not be a poor person. You would have a modicum of economic security. But when you don't know whether you're going to get another, another job in the whole week, the denarius is sort of not, not just your day's labour, but actually the insurance you're holding probably for tomorrow's food, for tomorrow's bread, as well as for today's. This, of course, is part of what explains the grumpiness of the people who got up at the beginning of the day, or rather were, were hired by the landowner at the beginning of the day, who worked the whole day in the vineyard, having agreed to a denarius, which wasn't a bad deal, but who then saw the people who'd come at the end of the day. By the way, there's another thing the translation lost us a little bit of. The older translations used to say that the people who were the last hired were not hired at five o'clock, but at, guess what, the 11th hour. Doesn't that sound different? Because, of course, that was the way Greeks and Romans and Jews calculated their days from the time, you know, the first hour of the day was when the sun came up and so forth. We, ha we almost had a lovely echo of that in that Jan Struther text that we just sang, didn't we? You know, the different hours of the day. Um, 
So the, the people who come at the 11th hour get paid the whole denarius. The people who work the whole day got paid the denarius. And the people at the beginning of the, who work from the beginning of the day aren't just exhibiting that kind of sort of childish sense of fairness that grumbles about how somebody else has more than them. They're grumbling because they'd actually been hoping that maybe there might have been a second denarius in it for them and their compromised, insecure existence might have just had a little bit more to prop it up because of the hard work that they had done. Now, despite this picture of injustice and insecurity, this is a parable. This is not an allegory. It's not a moral fable. Its point is not, in fact, about wages policy. It may be finding yourself wondering why it took so much time on ancient microeconomics, when in fact I don't think that Jesus is trying to make a point directly, at least, about how much people ought to be paid for vineyard labor, being members of the united fraternity of uh, pruners and pluckers or whatever it was. Um, because parables have one point. Parables always have one point, and the point is not about the medium of the story. To understand the medium of the story is just to help us to get to what the one point is. So, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a moral fable about the benefits of transport by donkey. <laughs> the parable of the sower is not an object lesson in the way in which to spread your seed in the garden when you plant it each year. And the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is not directly about exactly what a usual daily wage is, because it doesn't even talk about such a thing, or necessarily about what a just wages policy should be like. But hold that thought for a minute. The punchline, you see, is not whether it's right or wrong to pay people who have done different work the same way. The punchline is that God calls both those who have labored long and those who have just shown up and their rewards may be equal. Despite our sense of fairness, God says, forget your sense of fairness, pay some attention to mine. And the punchline, as Jesus says, is that the last will be first and the first will be last. And here the impact of that saying is really this, that whether you came first or last, you will receive what you need by being within the realm of God. God's concern for justice is not about what you deserve. God's concern for justice is about what you need. Just like the Israelites in the first reading today received the benefit of manna in a kind of remarkably equilateral portion because it's what they need, even though they've actually been grumbling about how much better the catering was back in Egypt. The manna and the denarius both represent the way in which God will sustain and reward us, not because of what we've done, but because of God, what God has done. Why then the denarius and the vineyard and the laborers? Well, because we, like Jesus' hearers then, may be inclined, you don't have to put your hands up to sort of plead guilty for this, but you might want to think about it. We are inclined to think that what we have, and I mean this as materially as, as you like, we are inclined to think that what we have is what we have earned by our own labor and talent. Whether this means our economic security or our spiritual commitment. In the world of our economy, the truth is that that isn't actually often very true. 
but often has to do with other forms of privilege that we may have inherited or from which we have benefited, not through our own effort, but through that of others. This is not always true, of course, but in the kingdom of God, it is never true. In the kingdom of God, what we receive is never what we deserve, but rather what God knows we need. Because even though the parable talks about wages, the truth of the kingdom is about gifts. God's reign, God's kingdom, this community of hope and faith into which we have been called, along with others, 250 years ago and ever since, and throughout the world, this community is not a place where reward is correlated with effort or with privilege. The places of first and last are reversible and they're not dependent on how much we did or the order in which we came, but on the fact of our common call. The invitation to be here constitutes a gift, God's work, not our work. And yet, the gift of being drawn into this community always involves a promise and a challenge to lift our gaze beyond what we can now imagine to envision a world where God's polity and God's economy could be discerned and could become more true and real. Just as people in this place before came to understand that the institution of slavery was not something that was in keeping with the character of the gospel or with any other notion of justice. But God's gift and call to us are not dependent on how smart we are or how hardworking we are or how politically advanced we have become at all. To our frustration at times, but to our joy at the end, God has called the enslaver and the enslaved and the emancipator to worship in this place. And God has called to this place those who have different opinions about the realities and the challenges that face us at this moment. And there is a truth about those realities, but you don't have to punch your card in a particular way in order to come in. The God whom Jesus proclaims is not the giver of rewards, but the giver of gifts. And now the gift invites the response, not because we earn it by responding, but because we can only come with the joy that wants to be a part of the work that God is doing in the vineyard. God has in the past not been a respecter of the distinctions that the world created among the people who came to this place. And now God calls us across many distinctions and abilities, many levels of wisdom and insight. God is still working in us and through us to bear much fruit. And if we understand that the nature of God's call and the, indeed the nature of God's being is gift and love, then we may well find ourselves thinking differently about usual daily wages and about the fragility of creation and about the continuing challenges of racial and other disparities in our society. But be of good cheer. God is working in and through us to bear much fruit. And whether our fruit feels like it is much or little now, God's gift is always great. And it comes not because we, of what we have done, but because of what we need. Amen.